Do you like extra content? Do you like supporting your favorite creators? Well, do we have good news for you? We have a patron. No, not a Patreon, a patron. What's the difference? Literally nothing, except for the fact that our patron is through Podbean. We have donation tiers at $1, $3, $5, $10, and $15 per month. At $1, you can join our Discord server and have access to monthly bonus content. At the $3 tier, you can watch our unedited video versions of our podcast that are definitely not safe for work. To join, just visit our link tree in the episode description and click Become a Patron. Welcome, everyone, to the brand new episode of You Hate to See It, or should I say, the Adam and Nick show. I'm Adam. I'm Nick. And uh, this week, we welcome the writer of the Star Wars Holiday Special and two-time Emmy winner, uh, Bruce Valanche. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Delighted. (laughs) I would give you an imperial greeting if I knew one. (laughs) Yeah, I, I know uh, Nick and I were uh, were very excited to to get you on because, uh, especially Nick, we like Star Wars, and uh, we yeah. really want want to talk to you a little bit about that, but also talk about um, some other uh, things that you've done throughout your life. We'll get to you working on the Star Wars holiday special a little bit later on in the show, but first, just as uh, Nick and I have been left without our third. And it's now just a duo. Um, you've worked on some some duos before, such as the uh, the Donnie and Marie show, and also yeah. other variety shows like the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. So, so what are some of your experiences on those shows with the casts and actors and stuff? Oh, uh, you know, Donnie and Marie was a hit actually, and mm-hmm. so I was with it for a few years. And they were they were young. Marie turned eighteen on the show. So we had a big sort of coming out party for her because she was becoming an adult. Bob Mackey came in and just started designing uh, clothes for a young woman as opposed to for a high school girl. And um, and, Don- and Donnie was uh, older, but he was uh, um, very eager. They'd been, you know, they grew up in, in, in this huge ball of wax that was religion and show business and family. And they they never really were kids. They were working. Marie, oddly enough, Marie was the one who wanted to work, who wanted to be a star. And Donnie was the breakout. And, uh, and I don't think he was happy about that because he, uh, he, he created a world for himself. He had a, a workshop in the basement and uh, he would retreat to the workshop and don't, don't bother me. I'm in my workshop. And they would also don't leave him alone. He's in his workshop. And I was convinced that was the way he got away from all of them. But it was it was quite a stifling atmosphere. I mean, they were it was there was a lot of money and a lot of uh, religion and a lot of a sincere religion. Not they're not phony uh, religionists. They were real. They were deep Mormons. They're the real thing. Mm-hmm. And but they deep Mormons have lots of restrictions. So here they were in Hollywood, surrounded by heathens. You know, <laughs> I mean, the first day I was. Uh, sitting up at my desk and, and I was I was enjoying a, a, a cocktail at my desk. I had a little Bloody Mary kit and I was thumbing through the physician's drug reference to see what I could buy that afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I was smoking. I used to smoke cigarettes. And uh, uh, Olive Osmond, who was the mother of the Osmonds, 
walked in. And uh, they had 14 kids, George and Olive. We called George the Mount of Olives. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, smoking, drinking, and, and are those hard drugs? Are those drugs I see on your desk? How can you do this to yourself? How can you do this to your body? Your body is a temple. And I said, mixing meat with milk, you heave it. Toy. <laughs> so, you know, the Jews, we, we speak up. And so I said, look, you've got your, your Mormon Mishigas, I've got my Hebrew Mishigas, let's just call it truth. And that was that. I never had a problem with her. Of course, I, I was careful to respect all of their things. You could never, you could never have a coffee break on uh, the show because they don't drink coffee they drink or do anything caffeinated. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a whole list of, you know, a very long list of things. In fact, the network censor had nothing to censor. Everything got sent to the, the, the elders in Salt Lake. And she was reduced to, to uh, timing the number of the flashes on the strobe lights in the disco scenes, because it's uh, at a certain frequency, it sends epileptics into seizures. So you had to make sure that you weren't broadcasting that sequence of, of light flashing. And that was her job. She was sitting there with a stopwatch counting the strobe lights. <laughs> Because everything else had been blanched from the script, so so uh, she had nothing that, nothing to, uh, you know, and um, and they all also all tend to they get married very young. As soon as they're eighteen, they get married because they're so frustrated, they're so pent up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so everybody got everybody got married early. It was a fascinating culture clash, you know. It was the. Yeah. Uh, the Mormons and the people and the Jews who variety television it comes from vaudeville and showbiz and you know all those things where Jews flourished and and uh, so it's an, it was always an interesting meeting of the cultures. And then what about uh, your time on the Brady Bunch? Uh, variety? Well, the Brady's the Brady's happened because the Brady kids had an act. Uh, they would go out to like state fairs and they would they would do their their dances and stuff and they were okay but um fred silverman who, who invented uh the idea of uh of co-host sonny and Cher, or tony orlando and dawn and these were all his ideas um and uh he he wanted the partridge family to do a show about themselves where they played themselves and they would do and then they'd have guests but they didn't want to do it so he looked at the brady bunch and he decided the brady bunch could do it so we you know, I said, this is too good. Florence Henderson was a friend of mine. And she said, please come and do this. Please help. So, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give it a twirl. And it was, uh, it was nuts because uh, in, in, the, in the show, they live at a house in Malibu where they have an Olympic-sized pool because we had water ballerinas. Because <laughs> uh, the Adani Marie had ice skaters, so we had water skaters. And... Uh, so that was, and you'd see on the set, they'd be diving around. There was the Pacific Ocean in the background. It was very weird. And they, and they did a weekly variety show. And this, the guest stars would come and visit them at the house. And then we would all, everybody would go to the studio. It was all in the studio shooting. But then we'd go to the studio and we would do the, the show that they were on, the sketches and stuff. Uh, and I mean, they, you know, they were they were okay for the, the sitcom, which was all about them and the kids. And was, but this was more adult and involved dealing with people like Lucille Ball and Paul Lind and Vincent Price and all of that. So it was all fresh. And then, of course, Florence was the only real Broadway performer. So she got to do a lot. We called the show One Captain and Seven Tenille, One Tenille and Seven Captains. And, of course, 
Robert Reed, the dad, was the worst of, of all. He was he was game, but he really couldn't do any of this stuff. So I used to, I used to, I dressed him up as Carmen Miranda. And and uh, years later, when when the Brady Bunch movie was released, which was a parody of the Brady Bunch, yeah, Nickelodeon, which is owned by Paramount, had put out, and they owned the Brady Bunch, had put out the movie, and so they exhumed the Brady Bunch Variety Hour and showed it as a promotional thing for the Brady Bunch movie. And I was up one night and I got this call, dude, I'm watching this show and it's, there's the dad from the Brady Bunch, he's dressed as Carmen Miranda and your name is on it, dude, what the fuck? And it was like, you know, maybe 30 years later and I had to explain to him, well, once upon a time, so I was uh, trying to go through some of your IMDb and stuff like that. And I saw that you're uh, first and you've done a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I have an agent who said, lose the last few pages. It makes you sound real old. Yeah. Um, it, it shows that uh, your first writing credit was for a 1976 TV movie called Charo. Oh, it was a, it was a pilot. It was a, uh, uh, it was it was a pilot for a series starring Charo. Yeah, it was, okay. probably was my first. My first one was, I think, the Manhattan Transfer. But uh, um, but Charo followed on the heels of the Manhattan Transfer. Uh, Charo wa- was a big talk show star, and she has she holds the record of the most Love Boat appearances of anyone. Mm-hmm. Right, which which could win you a, a, a trivia night. Trust me, hang on to that factoid. <laughs> Because you'll be in a bar some night, and they'll say, you know, that'll be the question. You go, Charo, and yeah, you'll get the you'll get a bucket of beer. Uh, she had a a pilot uh, where she played the wife of a marine. It was called Charo and the and the sergeant. <laughs> God, and, and and it didn't go. And so this was the second attempt at a pilot, and uh, it was it was the same premise as the Brady Bunch. Charo was a big was Charo a big star living in Beverly Hills, and she would do a show every week, like but this was what Jack Benny did, uh, and she would also she'd have guest stars on the thing, and the guest star for the pilot was Mike Connors, who uh, had a show called Mannix, a private eye show, or a tough private eye, and uh, and so it, it was funny watching the two of them carry on, and then she had of course her her household personalities or with it, and. Uh, the show aired and it got a gigantic rating. Uh, we, we didn't know why. I mean, Charo obviously was the reason, but also I think maybe the competition was not so great. But it, and the network went crazy because it, they didn't know whether they wanted to do this pilot, and they wound up not doing it and paying us all as if we had done a whole season of the Charo show. And uh, I have the, I still have the binder. Uh, it's the only gold lame binder. Because somebody, you know, the, the whoever in the office thought, well, it's Charo, it just can't be plain. It's got to have, you know, have a little coochie coochie on it. So. Yeah. <laughs> so your longest stint of writing was uh, was for the Academy Awards. You wrote for the Academy Awards from '89 to 2014. I, that's true. Yeah, I did 25 years of it. Which is- what is the process of like writing for an award show like that? Like how much is scripted? How much is improvised? Like how, how do you go about that? Well, as we saw this week, as, as I, I think we saw this week, something yeah. some of it is improvised. Yeah. I suspect that was what happened. Uh, 
Um, I think if if he, I think if he, I don't think anybody wrote that for him. I think he wrote it, and uh, I think he or he improvised it. One. <laughs> yeah. But um, um, generally, everything is written. Everything except the acceptance speeches is written, and and the occasional ad lib. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the occasional ad lib, like. Uh, uh, and anything that the hosts do is in in the prompter unless some something happens. I mean, I suspect that uh, Amy Schumer's Ukrainian remark was uh, introduced by Amy Schumer uh, on the fly, and she said it like she was she was shoving it in there just so so it could be on the record. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, everything is said and everything is vetted through a thousand different people. You know, nothing goes on the air without people knowing about it. So I mentioned this at the top of the show that uh, you won two Emmys at the 63rd and 64th uh, Emmys for your writings, and you were nominated five other times. You also have written for the Emmys, written for the Tonys, written for the Grammys. How is... I'm a uh, goat. Yeah. I'm a goat. I'm an EGOT, not a goat. I'm not, yeah. I'm not a goat. I'm an EGOT. I'm yeah. sorry. It's, I'm not, it's having a dyslexic moment. I'm an EGOT. <laughs> I've written I've written for all four of those shows yet. Um I haven't won I've only won awards for the Emmys, but I've written for all, all of those So so can you t talk a little bit about what it was like winning two Emmys back to back years, mind you? Well, they were both Billy Crystal shows. The first one was uh, Billy's second time as a host, and it was the Jack Palance year, which mm -hmm. you may or may not know about, but do you know about it? That's the one that he did one-armed push-ups, right? He did one-armed push-ups. Well, he 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 won for his his performance in Billy's movie City Slickers, and in which Billy basically cast him, and uh, and and uh, he made he made some kind of a joke about Jack in the monologue, and so when Jack won, he came on, and the first thing he said was, "Billy Crystal, I crap bigger than him." Mm -hmm. So we thought, oh, well, he's lowered the bar considerably. We can do whatever we want. And then he proceeded to do this rambling speech. And then to show everybody how virile he was, is uh, he uh, got down and did um, uh, one-arm push-ups. And Whoopi, who was giving him the award, was standing behind him. And she was kind of like, she couldn't quite believe it. But we looked at it and we realized that we had to throw out everything we had and and go with a run of Jack Palin's jokes. It would be the theme for the evening. And the fact that we that we did all that as the show was going on backstage was what basically won us the Emmy th that year for mm -hmm. variety show writing. And then the following year, uh, we had Jack come out like uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, and he was lugging a gigantic Oscar that Billy was riding. <laughs> show how strong he is. And... Uh, and and they liked that too, and they they gave us an Emmy uh, two years in a row. And the first year, Billy didn't think we would win. He was on vacation in Hawaii with his family and uh, didn't want to come back. So we all got to speak because mm -hmm. nobody was going to cut off the writers. Nobody who was on producing the Emmy show was going to cut off the writers of the Oscar show because they were all people he worked with. Yeah. The second year, Billy made sure he was there, and he, we won, and Billy got to make the speech. But the first year. I was the last writer to speak, and they had all thanked their wives and their this and their that. And I just came on and I said, I'm very sorry I didn't have to sleep around more to win this. <laughs> and we went and 
And then they went to commercial and, and the uh, director on the PA said, thanks for giving me the joke to get us out. <laughs> Baby, I'm such a pro. Yeah. I was so proud of myself. So uh, how is the writing process between all of those four shows different? Or is it basically the exact same thing every time? It's pretty close to the same thing. I mean, the, the, um, the, on the Emmys, the, the, the problem is you're, you're, writing about the same shows you know mm-hmm. i mean every year that game of thrones is up you're you're writing about game of thrones and it tends to get a little monotonous on the other shows you have new product every year that you're writing about so mm-hmm. it, it's very different and um and you have different hosts and and you you wind up serving the host that you've got that year and and then you really can't do a whole lot of real writing until the nominees are announced because then you're you know what you're writing about and you know who's going to exercise the ritual taking of umbrage that they've been they haven't been nominated and mm-hmm. you know you you see the playing field so uh another what that means is a lot gets written in a very short time there's a lot of time sitting around spitballing and then you actually as as george slaughter producer used to say that you you don't get to the remington until you know like a month before but that, that is, it's very much, and then it never stops. I mean, you're literally writing throughout the live broadcast. You're, as things happen, you're changing things and all sorts of stuff, you know, goes down. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, someone just walks up on stage and slaps the shit out of the host. It's, it's. Well, that was the first, I have to say. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think, I don't think I've ever, I was trying, I mean, I said there's a movie called The Original Star is Born, not the original, but the Judy Garland. Uh, he's, he's drunk and he slaps her by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think there's ever been actual violence on, on the stage. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it's sad, you know, something's right. Something, you know, Will is such a sweet guy and there's just something snapped. Well, yeah, I mean, and I mean, as the years keep going on, people seem to care less and less about these kinds of award shows anyway. And yeah. now, now the only talking point of the award show is... Uh, a negative thing like well, these shows are already hurting like i know it's too bad because it overshadowed all the good stuff the, De- the coda which is a beautiful movie and it's a, a landmark movie because it's about deaf people playing themselves and troy kotzer winning and uh and- that's pretty wonderful and ariana debose who's identifying as a queer woman of color and and the latina latinx whatever the word is now i can't keep up uh <laughs> yeah I mean, all of those those things. It's it's just uh, it, it overshadowed all of that, and that's really too bad because uh, it was a good year in that. Yeah, and I, like I feel more bad for Serena Williams and that family because now this is what's fought. Like this is now the legacy of that movie of King Richard no. is this. Like no matter right. what happens, that's true. That's true. You're absolutely right. King Richard himself has come out and like and and condemned will for his bed yeah so now i, I want to kind of swivel into uh some of your acting credits some of those things that oh, you've them. done um yeah. <laughs> so how does it feel being immortalized as yourself in the simpsons and what was that oh, like it's, doing it's that probably my highest achievement and i <laughs> i discovered that because it's, it's like people i grew up with say uh it started well. It, it's it was season eleven, and they're now what season thirty five. So when it first happened, I would get kids I grew up with saying, "My children love me now because uh, because I know you because they saw <laughs> you on The Simpsons." 
And then now it's it's become my grandchildren love you now because I saw you on The Simpsons. <laughs> so that says something about The Simpsons. I'll say that. Yeah. But uh, it was it was great. I was on Hollywood Squares, and so the joke was about Hollywood Squares, and uh, it was a one line thing. And I went in and um, and uh, recorded it, and um, they give you a trunk uh, as a gift of Simpsons memorabilia, which is, they're not selling. It's they just make up this line. So I have all this valuable, one of a kind Simpsons memorabilia. My favorite is uh, Homer Simpson bowling ball, and it looks like <laughs> it looks like an uh, an egg yolk with with little fine strands of blood going through it, and then it it has no holes. And you kind of look for the holes and there are three red dots and a, a, a magic marker and it says, drill here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's utterly unusable as a bowling ball. Yeah. Uh, and it comes with its own case and all that. So it's full of that kind of stuff. And, and the other highlight of the day was as I was recorded my one line and I was leaving, a huge limousine pulled up and Elizabeth Taylor got out and she was going in to record her one line. She's um, she's Maggie, the baby. And and the only thing Maggie's ever said is, I think, mama or goo goo or something like that. That's Elizabeth Taylor. And she got a trunk, too. And later on, we were working on some on an AIDS benefit. We compared items in our trunk and, and we had different stuff. They really they knocked themselves out coming up with stuff. <laughs> It struck me that they were all prototypes for things they knew they couldn't sell. Yeah. <laughs> so you've also played yourself in movies like You Don't Mess with the Zohan and uh, yeah. and shows like The Nanny. So like, what was your experience yeah. on those two projects? Well, or the Zohan was Adam Sandler, and it was his his big Jew movie. And he was an Israeli, you know, Mossad guy. Everyone's got to have one. Jews are tough. Movie. And he's a Jew movie, and Jews are tough. And I said, yeah, go get him. Let's prove something. And because it's been a long haul since Paul Newman. Let's let's prove something. <laughs> and uh, uh, and he he called because he didn't like, he had an ending. He wasn't happy with it. He, he, wanted, he had Dave Matthews playing the, the Nazi villain, the, the, the Klan guy. And he wanted to give him some sort of bizarre end, not just to have him die. So he had this idea, and um, uh, uh, he's uh, he has uh, he's stolen uh, some some rare beagle puppies, who he's going to sell to finance his nefarious scheme. And then something happens, and he blows up, and he is sent sky high, and he lands crashing through the skylight of an apartment in Greenwich Village, where he lands on the couch between me and George Takei. <laughs> who are a married couple having a cocktail party. And he lands between us and the cage of dogs lands on the other side of George. And we're like, we have no idea who he is, but we love the puppies. And we start in with the puppies. And he suddenly realizes that he is, he is surrounded by queens. <laughs> and it's like, these are all gay people. And it's like the ultimate torture for this guy. And that was the end of it. And it was just one scene. And, you know, we ad-libbed everything that we said. So it was a lot of fun. And Adam was, had, he'd wrapped the rest of the movie. And he was already working on another picture called Bedtime Stories on the next stage. And he came over, he had broken his foot. So they wheeled him over. And he was watching. He didn't direct it, but he was watching it. And uh, we did a bunch of takes and we were, 
he was throwing lines at us and we were throwing lines at him and it was great fun and they paid us a fortune there's a studio movie you know so it was it was great and and i can't tell you how many people have said to me oh zohan you know especially like um uh i have people who go to adam sandler movies you know or watch them on tv or something like that they they, they, they may not speak english that well but they they look at me and they go zohan um and then you were on the nanny playing yourself again I was on the nanny because um, in it was the Hollywood Squares thing. Uh, Mr. Sheffield uh, is a guest on the Hollywood Squares. We're doing Broadway week on the Hollywood, which we actually did in New York, but this was, we did, uh, we shot it at Fran's uh, studio at Culver City. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, or actually they may have come and shot on our set, but it was Mr. Sheffield, it was the, Chuck Shaughnessy is uh, on the show along with a, a lot of other famous Broadway people. And we had a bunch of actors, you know, and us. And uh, and Fran comes in, of course, as Fran. And she, I forget what the plot was, but she she worms her way onto the set and she gets stuck in the square and it's a whole a whole thing. And it, it constantly airs and reruns and I get $1.98, you know, every now. <laughs> it's terrific. And I can say, I was on the nanny. Um, so how do you go about playing yourself and like what's the difference between <laughs> like playing a caricature or a character version of yourself and you as an actual human being like well what's... uh you know it depends on the material i mean sometimes they give me a line that, that something i actually would say and sometimes i'll say that that's not going to sound right coming out of me and we, we fix it so uh my my uh my Peril is that I will I will do, be a heightened version of myself, you know. So it'll be like too much energy and too you know, and it's not like sitting back now and just sort of talking, which is what most of those things require. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very weird. Um, and I, one of the things that happens on a show like the Oscars is uh, a lot of actors come out to give an award and they don't have a character to play, and unless they're the kind of people who do one man shows or nightclub acts or Vegas they don't uh, they don't really know who they are when they're not in character and so you you kind of have to try to give them a character or at least you have to give them something to say about the category that uh, that it, uh, that supersedes that that they can just kind of make an observation as themselves but that is a difficult kind of writing believe it or not and so some of them wind up coming up with characters because they you know like johnny depp who, who was a rocker and then you know a movie star but then he adopted a character that was some partially Jack Sparrow and partially Hunter Thompson. And he, that's his talk show character. Mm -hmm. In my research, a lot of places stated that your first acting credit was playing the dress manufacturer in the 1975 film Mahogany. But I found some acting credit, but I'm not 100% sure if you were even in this movie. And from 1971, you put uh, Tante Rosa and My Name is oh, Rocco yeah, yeah. Papaleo. My name is Rocco Papaleo, uh, which is uh, an Italian character called Permette Rocco Papaleo, and later got released as Rocco in Chicago. And it, uh, I was, it was in Chicago. I was writing for the Trib, and I was, uh, a, I was in a restaurant, and this the producer came over to me and said, I like a euphase. I want to, I want, I want you in my picture. So I said, okay, fine. And it was, uh, his name was Ettore Scola and he became a big Italian director. This was, I think maybe his first feature. Uh, 
and it was Marcello Mastroianni, who was a huge international star. And uh, uh, it has a distinction of being the only Marcello Mastroianni movie to flop in Italy. And this takes a lot because he was like huge. And, and it was about a guy who was uh, down in his luck and he came to, to, to he went to Canada. He was, he was imported to Canada to work in a coal mine. And a whole bunch of the Italian guys find out that their favorite fighter is going to fight in Chicago. And so they get on a bus and they cross the border to Chicago to be at the fight. And he speaks no English. And he kind of gets lost in Chicago. And one of the first thing he sees is a huge ad for Virginia Slims with Lauren Hutton. And he falls madly in love with Lauren Hutton. And as this is happening, Lauren Hutton crosses the street in front of him and he can't believe it. She's in Chicago doing something. And he becomes kind of a stalker of Lauren Hutton. And eventually they hook up and uh, as he falls for him, and it, you know, it ends the way it would end, which is they separate ways. But he winds up, uh, he gets mugged and he is taken by a kindly old alcoholic woman into the, a bar that, where fighters hang out. And it's run by me. And I am uh, an ex-pug with a broken nose. So I had coil springs in my nose. So it would look really broken. Mm -hmm. And I'm also very flamboyantly gay. But I run this bar for all these fighters. This was a very Italian concept. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, this would not happen in, re in real life Chicago. And and I was called uh, uh, Tanta Rosa, Auntie Rosa. And I had a hairnet on the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, and for three weeks, I had to have... Uh, a two-day growth of beard and it would be shaved back every day and that's why i grew my beard out after three weeks and said i'll never shave again it took 32 years and i did hairspray and i couldn't talk them into the woman being a bearded lady so i had to shave it yeah anyway we did this movie and it was uh we had we had a lot of fun doing it. and i love marcello because uh who spoke english but didn't want to because he he was afraid he would sound like, you know, like Chico Marx, like, I'm not going to hit you so bad. You know, <laughs> and he was afraid. I said, you don't sound like that, but he didn't like it. And so uh, we speak French. And uh, he was living with Catherine Deneuve, French actress, and she was there. And so we all, I, I, we, had a, we had a blast. And the whole movie was dubbed. Every, I mean, we recorded every line and then, you know, it was dubbed into a million different languages. It was like the way they do it in Europe. It was so, it was weird. <laughs> that came before mahogany that's true mahogany yeah. was after that so you, how much did you actually write of the star wars holiday special well a lot i mean there was a team as i recall first of all i have to say you know if if we'd known we'd be talking about this thing 40 years later we <laughs> would have paid closer attention that's number one and number two it was the 70s and anybody who tells you they remember the 70s wasn't there <laughs> <laughs> We were all sort of baked. I mean, and I and I talk about this, and I, you know, then I get I get um, tear sheets from people saying uh, Valanche, who admits to copious drug abuse, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't copious. We we you know we roll a, a a blunt and we would work it off as we were working. And this wasn't. I mean, I I, I joke that Carrie Fisher and I, uh, Carrie had much more extreme drug users than I, but we would. Uh, we would get to snorting the sweet and low in the cafeteria <laughs> because it looked good. But the truth is, no, I mean, we weren't, everybody had sort of a mellow buzz going on. I mean, it, 
everybody who was my age at that point, the older ones, of course, were too busy pouring bourbon on the rocks to have <laughs> to worry about, you know, rolling goobs. But uh, so that's there. And the other thing I, uh, I have to mention is that when um, this pisses people off who love Star Wars, is that when we did that show in 1978, Star Wars was not a big deal. Yeah. Star Wars had been a summer picture that was a blockbuster. It was among the first blockbusters. I mean, uh, I think Jaws was a blockbuster, the very first blockbuster like that, that opened in 3,000 screens and everybody went to see. But, um, and uh, George hadn't started shooting The Empire yet. So it, it was, it could have been a one-off and a lot of people viewed it as a kind of a, a silly sort of uh, spoof of Republic uh, serials that he used to go to on Saturday morning, science fiction mm -hmm. movies that they would see when they were kids that always had a cliffhanger and you would come back the next week to see how it resolved or continued. And that Star Wars was kind of a riff on that. And it wasn't, it wasn't until much, much later uh, after the three pictures came out and then uh, everybody, the next generation saw them on, uh, on VHS and DVD that it became the Scientology of the nerds. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, 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 we didn't realize we were, we were treading on religious ground when we did it. And of course <laughs> the internet, uh, allowed us to realize that that's what had happened, especially because, uh, one of the wonderful tangents of the internet was people discovered the Star Wars holiday special, which had came and went in one night uh, the week before Thanksgiving in 1978. And uh, they were they were astonished and betrayed. And they besieged George and say, how could you do this to us? And of course, George got scared. Who could blame them? I mean, they were, you know, they were coming after him. I mean, it was almost like watching Will Smith come towards you. Yeah. It was terribly, terribly scary. So uh, he tried to destroy all the copies and, and pretended it never happened. But of course, every time he did a new Star Wars venture, it would come up again. And now he's done like, you know, 10 of them. And he finally uh, caved in and gave Lego the rights to do the Star Wars holiday, Lego holiday special, which mm -hmm. referenced the old show. And I think also was a way for him. He's determined to get Life Day into the, the calendar as, yeah. as an actual holiday. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he has probably not noticed that, you know, May 4th has become a holiday already. May the 4th be with you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but that's not enough. I think he really wants to have. But I kept I said to him, you know, Festivus never really had traction either. Yeah. Uh, Seinfeld Festivus for the rest of us did never really had traction. So it's tough to get one of those things going and it takes many generations generally. So anyway, he allowed them to do this. It was almost like his way of saying, yeah, right. There was a Star Wars holiday special and now we're going to do it the right way. So he did it with Legos. Yeah. Yeah, and they had a Daisy Ridley Lego look like Rosie O'Donnell. So I mean they didn't <laughs> they didn't come out of it unscathed either. Everything you just said about early Star Wars is blasphemy, apparently. Yeah. Uh, my <laughs> was blasphemy, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been cancelled by, you know, by everybody on Tatooine. Well, yeah. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, Disney's pretty much stolen your uh your hatred. So have they? I thought, but they made so much. They make so much money off of. Oh, it. they made so much money, but everyone hates them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do they, do they hate um, Rebel One and uh, um, 
uh clone wars and rebels and stuff that's no that's yeah. stuff that people actually like rogue yeah. one people like rogue one yeah. they just hate they hate the three rogue. big star wars movies oh, yeah they, they hated seven eight and seven, nine yeah seven eight they and nine they did. oh i didn't realize that okay. yeah and solo I, <laughs> and I, I hate i like solo okay? i also like solo but people uh, but every, solo. everything else is fantastic as i like solo because i'm gay and it was about a hot guy so yeah. <laughs> but at last my my demographic was being served yeah <laughs> uh, everything else is really good um i watch all of that stuff with my girlfriend my re- current relationship is essentially just based off the of star wars <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah it, it uh it, the 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 last three of uh, the, the force uh, the force arises the force ejaculates whatever those titles yeah. were uh, <laughs> I was amazed to, to see that uh, Lupita Nyong'o never speaks a word of any known language, and everything <laughs> he says is subtitled. And also, I mean, because we had were we able to use subtitles on the Star Wars Holiday Special, it would have been a different show altogether. You actually would have been able to see what the Wookiees were saying to each other, but we were not allowed to use subtitles. And but of course, also Lupita Nyong'o is is not recognizable uh, in any of the Star Wars movies. She's under uh, so much. I'll be completely honest. Movies. I didn't know she was in them. Yeah, she's that. She's a tiny little. I forget. She's like a traitor or something. I don't know. She's she's a Yoda Yoda esque character in the. Oh uh, yeah yeah oh, yeah. Oh that okay. That's Lupita Nyong'o. That I didn't know that was her. See, I rest my case, Your Honor. <laughs> um. Well, that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. Um, was uh, were there was there any dialogue actually written for the Wookiees the same way that there was for Chewbacca for uh, the actor to physically say to Harrison Ford so he knew how to respond, or was it just random garbage? We 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 started with uh, indicating what he was supposed to be to say, and then we actually wrote the lines because Peter wanted to have some lines. Mm. He wanted to be able to, and I guess Harrison was, you know, was was interested in that too. Although, I, I don't think in the movie that they necessarily did that. But uh, who knows? Harrison, you know, was there for a day or two, and he was also in, enjoying the, the fruits of the land, and uh, <laughs> and couldn't wait to get out. You know, he just, I mean, he was there. Obviously, they leaned on him heavily to be a part of this. And yeah, I'm sure they were making it worth his while, but he was, you know. He, uh, and and now when you mention it to him, it's kind of he freezes over. It's almost like the end of the empire where he freezes. Yeah. Like- <laughs> so this question, I uh, I went to some of our listeners. One of them asked, uh, "How does it feel to have somehow created at the same time what's considered the worst Star Wars shows and one of its most popular characters, Boba Fett?" Well, Boba Fett was actually, that was the one thing George did all by himself. He, uh, he wanted to do an animated uh, feature and he couldn't actually sell it. So he had a Canadian group do a 10 minute section, mm-hmm. uh, which we put into the show. And uh, that was what remains of, of the show, essentially. Yeah. So I can't, I can take no credit for Boba Fett, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, uh, how does it feel? I mean, you know, it's, it's it's 40 years ago so um so i i have i'm numb yeah <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm writing a book now about how i wrote the worst television shows in history and, <laughs> and that certainly is is uh the, the, the way into the book it's like it yeah. doesn't get worse doesn't get worse than this you don't get you don't get more criticism than this but but 
I'll tell you, you know, the criticism was muted when it was on because Star Wars was so silly. It was considered so silly at that point yeah. uh, that that you know, and, and it was uh, the the attempt to reconstruct the, the the universe on a cheesy budget and a cheesy on a soundstage when when George had spent you know a lot of money over in London building all these things. Uh, I mean, it was obviously it was not going to make anybody who loved the movie happy. Yeah, it was not going to make them happy to watch them interact with CBS television stars like B. Arthur and Art Carney, and you know, I mean, it, it was or the, or to have the new Wookiee characters be uh, be a family, uh, a tender-hearted domestic scene. And nobody nobody tuned into Star Wars to see any of that. Yeah, that was a very television kind of concept. And it was basically a way to get um, a way to get uh, other stars in. But you know, George told me he'd written ten Star Wars stories and he was going to film them. And he, at the time, eventually he filmed three, and then he three later, and then he kept going. But he sold off some of the early stories that he couldn't get made, and one of them was this story about the Wookies. And um, I, I think, and he sold it to CBS, and I really believe that he thought they were going to do an original musical, uh, not a kind of pastiche of what it turned out to be. Why he thought there could be an original musical starring characters that don't speak, sing, or dance, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, he might have given that a second thought if he really wanted to have a musical. But I, I, you know, he's brilliant. I give him the benefit of the doubt. But we were handed this this show where the central characters all sounded like fat people having orgasms. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I know. So it's uh, it's you know we that we, we were handed that and it was a TV show, so we also had to have a lot of guest stars. I don't think he really reckoned with that. I don't think George sat home watching Sonny and Cher, you know, and, and any of that stuff. I don't think that was really in George's. George's yeah. So someone else asked, uh, who thought it was a good idea to name a Wookiee Lumpy? George. <laughs> uh, I think his real name is Lumparuma something, which sounds very Australian. And um, and it's Lumpy for short. Everybody's, uh, all, all of his fictional characters have long, elaborate names. Mm -hmm. Chewbacca is short for Chewbacca Tikatak or something like that. And, and all of them. And then they, he gives them nicknames. Uh, Mala is actually Mala Chittachuk, and she's called Mala. That's the mother, the Mrs. Wookie, Mrs. Mm -hmm. Chewbacca. Uh, so it's all that was all George. That was uh, absolutely all. That was from his canon. Yeah. So you know, go go pick at uh, Skywalker Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you would say like the majority of this was like George's idea and like well, George's uh, brain. Certainly all, all the Wookiee characters. I mean, we, we in, injected the other stuff to have, uh, to have stars. We had Art Carney play the, uh, um, uh, although I think George named him Sean Dan. It was, that was George's character that he put in. Sean Dan was an intergalactic traveling salesman, like a Tupperware salesman. Mm -hmm. And he, he comes to, uh, um, to the Wookiee planet uh, to deliver stuff to uh, Mala, Mrs. Chewbacca. But he is also, of course, uh, a, a, a rebel uh, conspirator. He's, and so he's, he's passing information between various members of the Rebel Alliance, of course, 
Chewbacca is a member of the Alliance, the Rebel Alliance. And um, uh, so, but he's also there to, as Mar what I call Morris the Explainer. He tells us what's happening, that, that they're, on the, they're in the Millennium Falcon, they're on their way home, they're trying to make it back for life. They, he says that all to us in English, and it's all in conversations he has with her. So he says, how are you? Oh, I'm sorry, your toe hurts. And, and he translates all of it, all this stuff because we couldn't have subtitles. We had to have him translating. So uh, those were the characters. Some of those characters were, were George came up with. We came up with B's character because we wanted her on the show. And we, we thought it would be, in George's uh, story, they stop off on Tatooine uh, for something. I don't, need, I don't remember exactly what it was, but they go to the cantina. And the cantina is where all the aliens are. And uh, there had never been a person running the cantina, but we made her the Statue of Liberty be, I mean, uh, as the, she was on TV, she was Maud which was a very popular CBS series, pre-Golden Girls, and it was a spinoff of All in the Family. And so, uh, so she was a, a big star. And uh, we, we, we made her, because she could also sing, we made her the, the owner of the bar and so that we'd have a little variety interlude. In order to get uh, some dancing on the show or some musical performance, George had, had invented these virtual reality helmets that when you put on, they kind of piped into your brain and, and your fantasies were explored. And I thought, wow, this has endless pornographic possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't go near those, but we came close because we let the grandpa Wookiee have a fantasy about initially Cher, who, who uh, bagged it a few weeks before the show and Diane Carroll came in and she was like his, his fantasy. It's very lewd when you look at it now. I mean, I'm amazed we got away with it. <laughs> and I used to say to Diane, this is the first interracial interspecies uh, number on network television. Where's our NAACP Image Award? Yeah. And every time I saw her, I would say, "Have you heard from them yet? Have they have they nominated us?" <laughs> uh, so you know, though, and we, uh, you know, the kid opened uh, the kids. Um, I think he opened the music box, and we had the Cirque du Soleil. They were very early Cirque du Soleil performers. Uh, who were, did a number in like a hologram kind of thing. So all of that was stuff that we added because our mandate was to turn it into a musical variety show. And Harvey Corman, uh, who played three or four different characters that were all funny, including uh, an alien Julia Child, <laughs> who, who's uh, Malo's watching a cooking show and yeah, five, you know, all, the, all these arms and stuff. So who wrote the lyrics for uh, Carrie Fisher to sing at the end? And did uh, you guys ever hear from John Williams about putting words to his music? That's a great. Uh, I think he signed off on it. And I believe it was Ken and Mitzi Welch, who also wrote the song for B. Uh, they were writers from the Carol Burnett show. And they were, if you've ever seen the Carol Burnett show, they were elaborate medleys. Uh, and, and parodies of movies that were turned into musicals. And they wrote all of that stuff and they were very clever. But I, I think they were the ones who wrote that. Uh, Carrie wanted to sing a Joni Mitchell song. She wanted to sing, I Wish I Had a River, uh, which is like the Joni, it's a Christmas song that Joni Mitchell wrote. And um, uh, and we had to call Joni Mitchell and you know pitch it to her. She went, ah, you know, that high soprano laugh, ah, no. So it it didn't happen. <laughs>
Carrie was desperate to sing a song. She really wanted to sing a song because she always wanted to be a musical, you know, comedy star. I mean, her mother was a musical comedy star. Her father was a huge singer. And one of her first jobs was on Broadway uh, behind her mother in a musical called Irene. That was a big hit that Debbie did. And so she was always looking for, for a career in music and, uh, and, and not so much in acting. And the acting thing kind of just kind of happened. But she was going to, you know, uh, and I, I don't think anybody really featured Princess Leia singing a song, but she persisted and she got she got the song in the finale. <laughs> so did you guys like ha have full access to all of the Star Wars characters or were you guys limited to what you could use? And did you like have any ideas for what? Darth Vader or uh no not that i recall because i i don't believe he was in the story that george handed us i don't think uh and um probably because uh it's hard to remember but uh, i i would imagine he had plans for darth vader in the empire and he didn't want to confuse anybody i don't think i mean this was a simple thing like it's it's han and leia and uh, Chewbacca and they are going to the planet for the Life Day celebration, and it, it is a beginning, middle, and end. It's not a part of the canon. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. affect any of any of the storylines of the entire saga. It was. It was a one-off, if that's the expression we want to use. Yeah. My one question is: Was Mark Hamill as high as he looked during it? Uh, he may have been. I'm not sure if this was after he had the accident or before he had the accident, but uh, uh, he could have been. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't. Was I there? Yes, we, he came in and we shot it. We were at Warner Brothers uh, and we in the Valley and we uh, shot it all this. So he may have been. I don't know. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to put. Uh, I don't want to want to put dubs uh, in his mouth, but uh, <laughs> he, he, he may very well have been. It, it was the flavor of the season. Yeah, <laughs> there's a very famous picture. I think probably the most famous picture from it. And it's just Mark Hamill giving it a thousand yard stare, like he's just seeing a ghost. <laughs> also, he has like that weird hairstyle. Yeah, that does, it looks like a wig. Yeah, eighty percent of it the time. Was, you know, even when we were doing it, I I said to the director, I said, "Does he really want all that eyeliner? <laughs> I mean, it really just you know, it's kind of like it. It looks he's." Like the whole relationship with uh, with uh, C-3PO is looking a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> the last question that I also got this one from a listener. Um, if you could go back and do it all over again with whatever budget you wanted and do it however you wanted, would you, what would you do differently? Oh, I, I, you know, it's an academic question because we couldn't do anything differently because we were handed this story and this mandate to turn it into a variety special. So uh, I think the title of my book is going to be, it seemed like a bad idea at the time. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, because all of these shows are like that. We knew going in that this was not a great idea, but we were going to try to make it work. And again, we didn't know that it would stick with us for 40 years. I mean... You know, we thought this was going to be something that would that would be on and and get a, a help sell a couple of Wookie dolls and uh, and we we all move on to the next thing and it wasn't going to live live in in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? George knew. 
But if Drug knew, he wouldn't have done it. If it was good, it probably wouldn't be popular anyway. Like, it's probably only popular because it's bad. Well, if it had been good, I mean, if it had been something else, then George would have owned it and it would have become part of the whole of the whole canon of the whole the Torah of Star Wars. So and these aren't questions, they're comments. And one person said uh, that he just wanted you to know that uh, when he was a young kid in the special aired on TV, he really enjoyed it back then. He was too young to be jaded and too inexperienced to catch all the famous people or grown up references. So to him, it was just more Star Wars and it was great. There we go. You're welcome. Um, and then another person said that he watches it every year for Christmas, and it's a Christmas tradition for something he does while he wraps presents. Oh, so uh, I know, I know, I know people who do that too. I've I've been to a couple of those uh, affairs. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about before uh, <laughs> of the ice pirates, ice pirates, and well, that I, was yeah. I haven't. I've never heard of it. I saw this when I was doing research about you. Yeah. And I read it because I like just the poster and the title caught my eye. And so I was like, and I was like, what is this? Like, this seems strange and something I would love. And I read, read the synopsis of it. And I'm like, this is like the weirdest, but yet most fantastical thing I think I've ever heard of. It was, it was Spaceballs light. I mean, uh, Spaceballs shot and used some of our sets after because Spaceballs came in right after we did, but it was a sci-fi spoof and, uh, um, half serious and half just jokey. And, uh, and I was brought in to do a rewrite and Paul Williams was going to play the part and he quit and they said, okay, you can be the evil emperor. <laughs> and uh, the evil emperor is gambles his body away and he's a head and they keep moving him from one body to another. So I, it was, I said, I'm famous for my head. There it is. <laughs> and we did many jokes about that. And it was uh, Angelica Houston's second movie. And it was kind of uh, her, uh, her, her father's producing partner was producing it. And when he saw her in the movie, he cast her in Princess Honor, which, which won the Oscar for her and he made her a movie star. So they would be, begin showing all of her movies on television. There were exactly two. Uh, and Ted Turner loved this movie. He ran, you know, Turner class, but he ran all early cable and he would show it on every one of his stations. And as a result, a whole generation saw this movie on TV in the early 80s. And Angelica keeps saying, I can't escape the thing. She said, I go to interviews and the first thing they say is, tell us about the ice pirates. She said, it's, it's impossible. So, you know, I said, yeah, I know I have the same problem. <laughs> but it was, it's very funny. And uh, you will see some of the sets from the space balls in it. And, uh, and it's people remember fondly the, uh, a creature called the space herpy. Gives you some idea of, of the comedy level of the movie. It was it was a space herpy was something everybody had to avoid, and it was a genuine. It was kind of like the worms from Dune, but smaller. If if I was to double feature Ice Pirates with, with Spaceballs, which should I watch first? Oh, I guess Ice Pirates because you well you've probably seen Spaceballs. Mm -hmm. Spaceballs is you know it was Mel Brooks in space, uh, and it's very funny. But it's a whole it's it's a comedy. Yeah. This was this is kind of also sort of sort of a, a sci-fi fantasy, but uh, uh, it was ours was done on a much lower budget, uh, and it's it's ingenious, and and we had lots of 
troubles with the studio, we had to cut the, uh, the shooting schedule short, so we had to put a, a time warp in to explain how things ended. <laughs> very odd. But again, you know, it was the 80s and people were still quaffing and, and smoking. And so if you were sitting home stoned, it made certain kind of a sense. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take I'm taking notes. That's how I'm going to watch it is sitting yeah. at home stoned. <laughs> right, <good. laughs> uh, thanks for listening to this week's episode, everyone. And thanks so much, Bruce, for uh, coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. It's great. Do you have anything coming up that you want to promote or anything? Uh, what can I promote? Wow, let me think. Well, I'm going to be in San Diego on April 16th uh, with, with uh, Suzanne Westenhofer uh, and uh, uh, the three of us are going to be doing like Legends of Gay Comedy, which is, if, you know, if gay comedy is your thing at a place called Martini's on Fourth, which is a great, uh, it's a great club I play. Uh, you know, the kind of performance world is just sort of coming back and uh, uh, I, don't, I have really nothing to plug. That I have to plug. That's about it. And I've, a lot of stuff I've written that uh, I, I can't talk about until they announce it. So yeah, right. that's it. Fair. So thanks so much, Bruce, for coming My on. Pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Take care. It's been grand. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> if you liked the episode, come and tell us your thoughts and join the conversation by rating us and reviewing us. You can also help us out by becoming a patron to the podcast. By becoming a patron, you get access to our private Discord server, our monthly movie review podcast, and you even get access to the unedited video version of the episode you just listened to. All links are in the episode description. Okay, haters, that's it for this week. You hate to see it end there, but fear not, we shall return. Same time, same place. You'd hate to miss it. Was he writing from Was he writing from prison? Just, just, <laughs> I don't know. Just, you um, know, I have to ask. I get a lot of correspondence from prisoners. <laughs> I'd like to give a special shout out. A couple weeks ago, I uh, I asked some of our audience for help coming up with a sign off, and we got so many responses that I'm actually going to be using a bunch of them throughout all of our episodes. So a very special thanks to Ren Lopa, Michael Allen, Amir Tilk, Kev Bamboo, Nando Bien, and Ethan Silva. 